You're listening to The Morning Muster, where we get sailors together to listen to the weather report and, well, to talk about the most important topics of the day. So grab a cup of hot chai. Or a coffee. I'm Teresa Carey. And I'm Ben Carey. This podcast is produced by Morse Alpha. We offer rigorous coastal and offshore sail training expeditions. Check out morsealpha.com. Today's episode is sponsored by Outland Hatch Covers. Outland makes next-generation hatch covers made from PVC that protect your hatch acrylic from harmful UV damage and help keep the cabin cool. They're also super easy to put on and take off. We've got Outland Hatch Covers on all our hatches and even on all the ports in the cabin in the hull. We love them. I, I honestly wouldn't switch back to canvas hatch covers. Oh gosh, no way. Check out outlandhatchcovers.com for more info. This morning's muster is all about weather and routing, which is something that's always on my mind when I'm out sailing or preparing for an expedition. And of course, it's always a hot topic of discussion at the dock ahead of a race or rally. It's one of those uncontrollable variables out there that gives sailors a lot of anxiety. But today we've got two experts in the field. We've got Rick Miller and Chelsea Carson with us. Uh, Why don't we kick it off with a little background from each of you. Tell us how you got started, what you're up to lately, and how you got there. Rick, why don't you go first? Well, I've been sailing uh, most of my life, probably from a pretty young age on small boats um, in New Jersey, but uh, that uh, led to um, eventually a career at sea. I've been a licensed uh, master since the mid-80s, and uh, currently I'm a professor at Maine Maritime Academy, uh, teaching navigation classes and meteorology classes. And I also sail professionally for Sea Education Association as captain and uh, faculty on one of their two vessels, the Corth Kramer or the Robert C. Siemens, They're both brigantines and uh, one's in the Atlantic, one's in the Pacific. Um, both excellent boats to sail and uh, we continue the educational component and research underway and under sail um, as we're sailing in those programs. Good. Chelsea, let's hear about your background. Yeah, so thanks for having me. I started sailing when I was young, I don't know, maybe eight or nine years old, kind of got into the competitive sailing aspect in dinghies in high school and college, and then decided I really liked watching the weather um, from the sailboat and went for a bachelor's degree in meteorology at University of Miami. And during my time at Miami, decided to do the SEA program um, as a student. I did the summer semester, which is how I came to know uh, Captain Miller, who is the captain on my, my summer semester. So after that, I basically went into weather forecasting for the marine industry and started to slowly specialize in sailing. And so now I am the U.S. Olympic team meteorologist, um, and I help sailors in small boats and large, you know, large vessels um, like the SEA boats learn about weather and do weather routing for them and forecasts. So yeah, that's my specialty is sort of in the the small scale weather for sailors. Mm, Super exciting. Why don't we kick it off here with just a brief overview of what what is weather routing? So, you know, just talking about weather routing, um, the, a teacher class at Maine Maritime called Marine Weather Routing, I'd say about 75% of it or more is really geared toward deep sea 
ocean-going commercial vessels. And you've probably seen in the in the news recently uh, some large container ships that uh, got caught up in weather systems that created a fairly significant casualty, losing hundreds of containers off the ship, um, doing significant damage and uh, uh, no mention of injury or uh, to crew on board. But those situations are typically uh, avoidable with good routing. So routing comes down to certainly uh, crew safety first, and then uh, the vessel, then the cargo. Um, But also it's involved in just being efficient. Uh, So being, uh, you know, efficient use of fuel and making your uh, destination in a timely fashion. So commercial industry is really focused on making money. So if you arrive on time and uh, without injury and without a fatigued crew, you're going to keep your your job. It also, weather routing is, uh, I guess, in a less formal way, uh, a big part of uh, passage planning for any type of vessel. So I know that Chelsea's been involved with yacht uh, motions from the uh, New England down to the islands, which a large group of vessels either uh, are delivered or the owners take them down and uh, they look for routing services or do their own weather routing in order to make safe passages in uh, open water. Chelsea, I'll let you fill in on that. Yeah, I guess in its simplest form, I think of it as using what we know is bound to happen with the weather and trying to basically plan a route for um, two things that at least two things I focus on are safety and strategy, kind of like what um, Rick was just saying for safety. That's obviously number one, most important, uh, making sure we're routing through safe areas, whether it's a motor vessel or a sailing yacht, making sure we're, you know, not getting into any giant low pressure systems or anything. And then secondarily, strategy being whatever the the goals of the vessel are, if it's to save gas um, or to sail as fast as they can. So I have a lot of clients that are racing and they want to find the fastest way from point A to point B. And so then the strategy kind of comes in secondarily after safety. Yeah, safety, of course, big one. My weather routing experience is probably focused on yachts because that's where I'm coming from. And, you know, it's everyone just wants to make a safe passage and not hit any storms, but not go super slow at the same time. So, but yeah, making money and saving fuel and going as fast as possible is key. Yeah. It's interesting because I think a lot of people focus on, you know, I mean, safety is important, but, um, you know, you can find a good weather window to do some of these routes, um, that can be much more comfortable than, what I, I've seen some people, you know, head out into weather and then end up in headwinds or just like some uncomfortable seas. And if you really kind of look a little bit further or um, kind of practice your weather routing skills, you can find a really nice weather window for a very comfortable trip um, and av- avoid a lot of the, you know, stressors of dealing with heavy weather. Mm-hmm. Just curious, is um, the ocean currents come into play here with the routing? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know Rick teaches in his marine weather routing class uh, about the Gulf Stream. And I think you guys do a like practice route from Newport to Bermuda and they have to cross, find a good time to cross the Gulf Stream. Is that right? Yes, we do. Yeah. So that's one of the uh, uh, kind of initial, we call them a virtual voyage, but uh, the students are given a uh, polar diagram for a sailing vessel and we watch the weather or they watch the weather. 
and they decide their own departure date. But uh, a big part of that is uh, a timely crossing of the of the Gulf Stream. You know, ocean currents, whether it's uh, Pacific or Atlantic, play a role into all the weather routing. So currents can be really favorable and give you a, a bit of a boost. But uh, if you're in the current with an opposing wind, they can also be pretty problematic. So it's good to have an understanding of the and the currents and the best way to go about either avoiding them or or using them to your advantage. Yeah, absolutely. Now, there's a I have a couple of little Gulf Stream stories because we've crossed it. You know, everyone crosses the Gulf Stream coming from the East Coast. It seems like to get to the Bahamas or the Caribbean, and a couple of times. Well, we've seen many water spouts, and they seem to congregate there around, around the Gulf Stream and or just past it. And I was just wondering offhand, is there any way to forecast where those water spouts are going? Mm. So water spouts are interesting because they're they're basically just, uh, I mean, they're tornadoes that, that occur over the, the water. Um, and the reason why they happen so often over the Gulf Stream is you have this very warm, surface of the water and especially if you have a cooler air mass coming over top you get a lot of instability or you know overturning of the atmosphere which spins and if it can get enough spin to it you'll get the water spout i would say it's very difficult to to forecast like individual locations of water spouts it's similar to you know uh forecasting an individual thunderstorm of exactly where they're going to pop up sometimes you'll be able to tell like that they're isolated in nature, like, oh, there might be one or two in this general vicinity. Um, or you might be able to tell, oh, it looks like it's just a very widespread event. And, you know, there's a high likelihood of them occurring everywhere. But individually, like where exactly you're going to find yeah, it. Yeah, I get that. And have you seen a bunch, Rick? Yes, I have seen a bunch. Um, probably most recently in the Caribbean, uh, just to the east of uh, Puerto Rico. It was over by Calabra, and uh, just right before we weighed anchor, uh, four fairly significant uh, water spouts were probably uh, maybe about six nautical miles uh, away from us. And we we just held our station and uh, let them pass. We could see pretty clearly the direction of the uh, convective cells that were generating uh, the water spout. So um, we gave them plenty of sea room. Another interesting one with the water spouts was I, I did a uh, SEA trip across the Atlantic and uh, we, we made our way across and we arrived maybe, you know, 24 hours a little before we were going to head into port. Uh, so we we're sailing in the Celtic Sea and actually saw two or three water spouts in the cold water there, which was a little bit of a surprise to me. I thought there were more often uh, warm water events and maybe they are, but uh, we certainly saw them up there in the the colder waters. Wow, interesting. Yeah, gosh, there. I remember one time we saw like fifteen water spouts at, at once. I, I couldn't believe it. And um, we were sailing little little small boats. I was on a twenty eight foot boat, and Teresa was on a twenty seven foot boat. And um, we, she had a catabord. And I mean, it's pretty scary when you see that many of them and you don't know where they're going. I remember Teresa was like calling me on the radio. And she's like, I'm putting Dory down below in the head, just in case. I don't know what's going to happen. And it was, uh, it was quite an, an intense moment or, you know, moments for us there, uh, especially on those small boats. You know, we, I think we both reefed down to barely nothing and, and you don't know what's going to happen. Is, is it scary for you guys when you come across water spouts at all? Oh, it certainly is. Um, and certainly something to keep an eye on. Probably the, 
most adventurous water spout event I had was in New Zealand. Uh, we were uh, in Cook Strait, which has quite a reputation for high winds. Um, and when we were in the middle of Cook Strait, we actually had really light winds. And we did a, uh, this is with that, the Robert Siemens with SEA. We did a science deployment right in the middle of Cook Strait. And we finished the deployment and started to head to an anchorage. We were um, due to go into Wellington to tie up the following day. And as we made our way toward the anchorage, a little bit to the east of Wellington, uh, the sky turned dark and uh, off the top of this uh, mountainside uh, came 60 knots of wind um, out of nowhere, seemingly out of nowhere. As we kind of started to take sail, one of the mates uh, noticed kind of a water disturbance that looked like the beginning of a water spout that came right over the top of the boat. At that point, we had just two, the two staysails up. We got the four staysail down safely and halfway with the main staysail, it just shredded. And we actually dipped the rail on the Siemens with bare poles, just with the wind uh, from that uh, water spout. Wow. That, that's a big boat, right? Yeah, 134 foot, you know, 300 ton vessel and just bare poles. We actually got permission to go into... The winds did not lay down, so we got permission to go into the port that night, and uh, we're, I was able to get the boat alongside um, in 60 knots of wind, which was pretty exciting. But Oh, my goodness. I assume with the help of some Zodiacs. No. Oh, goodness. <laughs> Just backed it in. That's yeah. incredible. So let's let's bring it back to some weather um, and get down to some of the basics. I mean, there's so many things involved in weather. It's so dynamic and it's so hard to like wrap your head around. But what what are some of the basics that you need to know to get started going sailing? And like what 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 should people be looking at as far as weather? There is so much to know, and the more you know, the more you realize that you don't know mm-hmm. <laughs> as far as weather goes. Agreed. But um, but it, also the basics really are accessible for everyone and for most people. So I guess some of the basics would be high pressure and low pressure. I think most sailors kind of generally understand that concept. And then what I think is maybe not taught as widespread is more of the the vertical, um, how should I say this, the vertical orientation of the atmosphere. So how things are at the surface and if they're lining up at higher levels um, so I know a lot of sailors probably look out or may have heard of the 500 millibar charts. Right. One thing that you can start to look at after you kind of get the idea of high pressures and low pressures is how are the highs and lows stacking up vertically? You know, is there a low at 500 millibars and a low at the surface? Um, and if so, that usually makes it more intense and stronger. So thinking about that is is always helpful. That's kind of the the basic place to start. But I, I like to break it down even even smaller scale than that, just because I think that as sailors, we're, we're such visual users of the weather, right? We're not necessarily just looking at it on a computer screen. We're actually out there in it, and we see the clouds coming in, and we um, can feel the temperature of the wind and feel the temperature of the water. So I like to teach people about stability, um, which I think can be really helpful in understanding if you're in a stable environment or an unstable environment. So I don't know if you're familiar with those two concepts, but I can explain a little if you want. Yeah, give us a little bit. So a stable environment basically means that, so we know hot air likes to rise and cool air likes to sink. So a stable environment has cool air 
at the surface below because it likes to sink and warm air up above where it likes to rise. So everybody's happy, right? We've got warm air aloft, cool air down below. Everything is staying basically nice and stable. So you're not going to expect too much thunderstorms, crazy wind shifts, um, probably not 60 knots of wind and water spouts. <laughs> um, when you're in very unstable conditions, it's, it's very much the opposite. So you tend to get um, warm air that is near the surface or at the lower levels, and it really wants to rise. And if you have cold air at the higher upper levels, it very much wants to sink. And so that creates that, what I was talking about, that rapid like overturning, um, we call it instability in meteorology. And so that instability is really a precursor for bad weather. And so if you can kind of start to understand those temperatures and know how the atmosphere is layered in that way, it gives you a much better idea of what to expect. Mm, okay, I get it. Yes, I've heard of my 500 millibars. I've looked at them as far as like um, where the weather is heading. That's how the way I've used it. Like, oh, it's going to go this way because the 500 millibar chart says it's going to go that way. But haven't really thought too much about the upper temperatures and the inversions and the, the instability like that. So that's really interesting. Yeah, so I think, um, you know, Chelsea mentioned some of the basics with uh, just high pressure and low pressure and, you know, asking about weather and, and sailing. It's a pretty wide open question when you're you know talking about going out for an afternoon sail in the bay or if you're doing a major passage but one of the things that to me is so enjoyable about weather and sailing is that uh, you want ideally the perfect amount of wind so for passage making um, you're trying to strike that balance of being close enough to a wind source which is often a uh, low pressure center or the area between a high pressure and a low pressure um, to get the spot, the sweet spot where it's the amount of wind that you want in the right direction. Not too much. You don't want to be in real big storm conditions, but you also don't want to be becalmed. So it's uh, it's trying to find that sweet spot. Even just knowing the, the rotation around a low pressure set center for the wind is an important spot, you know, at, at a very basic or beginner level of you know, watching the weather is um, when you see that low, you should be able to just by its location on a weather graphic, be able to get a good idea of what direction the wind's going to be blowing in your area. And uh, looking at a surface analysis, certainly being able to look at the isobars on the graphic to be able to determine what type of wind strength you're looking at. Are you looking at uh, pretty mild winds? Are you looking at a really uh, steep pressure gradient and a strong wind field? Yeah, exactly. Right. And you have to know that low pressures are counterclockwise and tight isobars mean higher higher wind. So as long as you know some of those concepts, just looking at those graphs can really give you a lot of information is what you're saying, right? Yeah, exactly. Awesome. And and let's let's just go a little further. And how are you getting those products, I think they like to call them, when you're out at sea? Well, it's also a great question and it's evolving all the time. Um, you know, there wasn't too long ago, I guess, in my career, where a lot of this was not available. On commercial vessels or larger vessels, you could get uh, radio fax on your single sideband. And the radio fax uh, would enable you to get, uh, depending on atmospheric conditions, but you could typically get pretty good weather graphics from the Ocean Prediction Center, from National Weather Service. Um, and it was a schedule of, of broadcasts. Um, but beyond that, it was uh, often voice recordings, 
you know, now with the advances in satellite technology and, and communications and kind of a more affordable way to have that on almost just about any any vessel, it's pretty easy to get uh, quality uh, weather information. I, I really like to get three different sources personally, at least, uh, so that you're not relying or putting all your eggs in one basket, so to speak. Um, so one way to get uh, weather graphics, if you um, have email access, is what's called FTP email. And there's a good description of how to access that on the uh, National Weather Service site. Uh, but you basically send an email with a, uh, a specific type of text request, and almost instantly you get a um, uh, email back with the graphic that you've requested. Um, you do have to have the codes, which again are also available, but uh, it's, like I said, a very inexpensive and, and uh, quick way to get the graphic that you'd like to look at. So whether it's a surface analysis or a surface forecast, 500 millibar, wind wave, all of those are available through um, FTP email. Very cool. I'll talk a little bit uh, about about grib files too that uh, I know um, initially the grib files were very accessible via satellite telephone um, and any type of pretty much satellite communications these days. So the uh, uh, grib files are right from the uh, weather computers. Uh, there, so there's no meteorologist that's interfacing with that information. So it's uh, basically taking the mathematical models and then generating some type of a, a forecast. But it's very uh, easy to get uh, pressure and wind and wave information for any place in the globe now uh, using grid files. And similar to the FTP email, it's sending off an email with a specific type of code. Um, and you can actually define the parameters of the area you want to see. You could look at the entire uh, North Atlantic, or you could pick a section of any um, ocean or area and get that type of information and out to a 10-day forecast, which is pretty impressive. Right. seems like a lot of people that I know of are using apps that will, will give you that same information, but uh, the email is pretty interesting. Yeah, that's kind of what it. I was going to bring up also, Ben, is um, the different programs and, and apps, like you said, that are out there now for weather routing. It's interesting because in some ways, you know, it's making weather more accessible to, you know, a lot of people that maybe, you know, hadn't thought too much about grib files before. But in another way, um, I, I always kind of urge people to look at um, the weather routing software with, with caution. But it is helpful because you can basically take those grib files. Um, you can enter your boat information, your boat polars, and the weather routing software will basically mathematically find um, a route for you if you put in point A and point B, and it will tell you, hey, this is the most optimal route for you to go to get from point A to point B. And it's helpful to kind of see what the mathematical models are suggesting that you do. And I always just caution people to really look um, at other sources, just like Rick was saying, definitely look at something that a meteorologist has, you know, put their input into it and at least checked over it, which a lot of, at least the surface analysis um, and some of those 24-hour forecasts from Ocean Prediction Center, you know that 
um, a meteorologist has looked at it. But it is good to to just get the raw data from a grip file as well and, you know, look at the different sources. There's global files, you know, global grip files, as well as some like local high resolution stuff, which is what we use more for the the dinghy sailing that we do um, just coastally. Right. Nowadays, it's a little more uh, overwhelming with all the tools we have. I want to go back to one thing you said and ask you, you said the the weather routing software or apps that we all have access to now. Why do you, why did you say we should um, use them with caution? Mm, yeah, I think it becomes easy to rely on an app and or rely on an, a route optimization because you know we rely so much on technology for everything these days. You know, it's almost like having a self driving car. It's like you kind of still want to be awake and paying attention to what's going on around you, even if you have like a self driving car. But the, the weather routing optimization, again, it just takes that raw grib file data, which is just pure computer models. And actually in meteorology, what we call it is guidance. And we call it guidance for a reason, um, meaning that it should kind of guide your ideas of what you want to do, but not necessarily dictate this is exactly what's going to happen. So that's kind of why I caution to just not trust, you know, if if your route optimization says to go this route because it's the the best one and the fastest one you should still look at other sources like you know ocean prediction center or some other models to see what they have to say and and do some comparison and and just know it's not i mean you guys already know this but it's not a substitute for your own weather knowledge and understanding of high pressure low pressures and clouds and thunderstorms and all that Mm -hmm. right right let's i want to talk about what do what folks can do to to learn weather and and one thing i know they do on sea is is a heavy duty um weather log they're all i remember observing weather like it seemed like every hour but maybe i'm remembering wrong it was a long time ago but one thing we like to tell our students to do is to um listen to the weather forecast or or get a weather forecast, whatever that is, and then take observations throughout the day, like a weather journal for each day, and check back and see how what actually transpired with the weather um, correlates to the forecast that they got earlier that day, like cloud cover, barometer, um, precipitation, wind direction, et cetera, et cetera. What's the best way for people to start to learn about the weather so they can have a better understanding of what the forecast will mean? They do the hourly um, weather uh, OBS at, at SEA. So I think you are remembering correctly, Ben, because uh, I remember taking weather OBS every hour <laughs> on the hour. Yeah, we definitely do hourly uh, weather observations um, 24-7 on the SEA boats, and all commercial vessels do that um, also. The, uh, you know, a couple of things that are really telltale about that is barometric pressure. Um, so when you look at your barometer, um, it tells you the pressure. A single reading doesn't tell you too much, but as you watch the barometer changing or not changing, if it's uh, steady, that tells you a lot about uh, what's happening weather-wise. Is the barometer falling? Is it falling rapidly? Is it rising? Is it rising rapidly or is it steady? So, you know, verifying the forecast is uh, an interesting thing to do, and it, it helps to build confidence into your interpretation of the weather that you're getting or the forecast that you're getting. So, if you look back at the forecast from the day before and they were forecasting 20 knots of wind out of the west and you got 20 knots of wind out of the west on that day, you could feel like, well, that was an excellent forecast. Um, but if it's not aligning, then you might be 
a little bit conservative in uh, looking at the, the current forecasting weather. If you're on the Ocean Prediction Center, they have a marine weather discussion. And oftentimes the meteorologists will actually mention their confidence in their own forecast. Uh, so there's variables in the information that they're receiving that either builds confidence, like several different models all aligning to give the same forecast, or if models are in disagreement, then there's probably some type of uh, anomalies in the uh, numerical models that are producing a different type of forecast and, and developing kind of a lower confidence in, in what they're looking ahead at. Yeah, keeping a weather log is, uh, is super valuable. And I actually encourage even just the the local day sailors to keep a log too. I mean, even though you can't write it down every hour, but you can go home at the end of the day and say, hey, what what did the weather do today? What did I expect to happen? And to kind of think about, you know, maybe what might have transpired if it transpired differently for some reason. Um, but you can do, yeah, the same thing on a long passage if you're taking hourly observations, you can kind of get an idea of what's happening currently, but it can give you a better idea of, you know, maybe which model is picking up on the weather pattern that's actually playing out, right? So if it, let's say one model says the wind's 15 knots, another model says the wind is 10 knots, and your your true wind speed is, you know, nine knots, you're going to go with the model that said, hey, the one that said 10 knots, that's probably the one that's, that's doing a little bit better. But yeah, the, uh, the only other thing that I really like to encourage people to do is um, try to use like your visual uh, clues. So look at the clouds and try to get a feel for um, what what do we think those clouds mean, right? Is it a front coming through? Are they just like little fair weather cumulus clouds that are um, continuing, you know, to mean that there's going to be fair weather? Um, do you see something off in the horizon? All of this kind of stuff helps your in, build your intuition on what to expect and helps you learn more about how the winds interact around clouds. That's one of the big things that that we teach as well is just how the winds work around thunderstorms, around fair weather clouds, and, you know, what kind of things you can expect just even in the short term around mm. that. Yeah. And I think in our, in our logbook, we keep um, an hourly record of, let's see, what is it? Wind speed, wind direction, uh, wave height, wave direction, barometric pressure, cloud cover percentage. Um, let's see. I think that's about it as far as weather observations go and and i, I think that's um maybe air temperature maybe that would be a good one too air temp would yeah. be good to add in rick anything else that you that you guys take regularly on the sea boats uh just the uh with the clouds also the cloud type oh yeah cloud type good point yeah yeah we also take cloud type and you know one of the uh, great aspects i think of doing hourly or at least periodic weather observations is it really kind of forces you to get out and, and feel the weather and look the weather and actually think about the weather. It becomes, you know, second nature after a while, but uh, it really just puts put you in that position of being an, a weather observer. And I, I totally agree with Chelsea that it's so important to visually just take a look at what's happening. And, you know, the more you do that, the better you get at it and the better you understand um, what's happening in the atmosphere and how that's going to play out. Another, you know, real great aspect about uh, weather observations is when we do look at a weather graphic, let's say we're looking at a surface analysis and you're at, you know, at sea, 
and you see there's a, a cold front. So you can say, okay, yeah, the cold front, but really observing when that cold front passes you then really gives you the opportunity to kind of put a time stamp on how things are happening and how the weather graphics you're looking at actually relate to where you are in the ocean. I always have the, the mates on uh, our vessels. When we do get any type of weather graphic, put a uh, little dot on the chart or a little X on that graphic to show the position of the ship. Because you can look at a graphic of the North Atlantic, let's say, and almost get overwhelmed with uh, maybe a big low pressure center. Or, But if it's not in your vicinity, it's not that relative. So putting that little dot on the graphic kind of zones you in into what's happening in your area. Right. Now, I've, I want to move into something a little different. With these apps that folks are using, are you using any of those on, on the tall ships? No. No, you're really just getting um, um, weather products from um, National Weather Service, right? Well, it depends on where we are, and that's a, you know another good question. The North Pacific and North Atlantic uh, certainly have excellent you know weather graphics and text. Uh, we also get automated high seas forecasts through our MRSAT equipment. Uh, but in the South Pacific, the Ocean Prediction Center does not provide information down uh, past about 20 degrees south latitude. So uh, there's good resources, you know, globally from different MET services. So New Zealand's got a very active and excellent MET service. Um, you can get out of French Polynesia, out of Tahiti, Fiji, um, uh, UK, obviously, and uh, Japan. Uh, you've probably seen the Bermuda uh, weather graphics that are a good complement to our own. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, again, really putting the research and the time in before you leave to list all your resources. So there's a small debate, it seems like, in the yachting world about predict wind versus windy and the pros and cons. And, you know, people prefer one or the other. And just wondering if that's anything that you guys are aware of and have any thoughts on that. I use both of both of those as input. Like I said, I, I deal with a lot of um, like racing yachts and people that are, you know, very into the high tech aspect of this, uh, this world. And so I, it's my job to kind of be up on a lot of that knowledge. So I look at Wendy, I, I have a, a bookmarks page that's probably 500 websites long <laughs> of mm -hmm. weather pages. Um, but I have predict wind and, you know, all of these sources, but I, again, I go back to just, it's good to have a favorite and, you know, you can, you can always go back to one site, but just don't always put all your eggs in one basket on one site or especially not one model. I get, I hear a lot like, oh, I've heard the European model is, is the best model. And there's not one model that is the best for forecasting. That's just, it just doesn't exist. So you really have to look at multiple sources, just like what Rick said earlier, and um, look at multiple websites. When I'm doing a forecast, I have probably at least four or five different either websites or, or sources up that I am looking at. And almost always, if I'm in or, in or around North America, one of them is the National Weather Service because they're just, they're the experts at that particular location. So sometimes I'm doing something you know, forecast out in California and I haven't been tuned into California in a couple of weeks. And the National Weather Service is the best way to kind of get up to speed on like really the local expert knowledge in that area. But yeah, just having diversity in what you look at, I think is is very important. Mm -hmm. I agree. Yeah, it is. And the, uh, I think the 
um, I look at Wendy as, as well, because there's a whole bunch of information you can get in that one site and it's very, you know, colorful and um, pretty easy to, easy to look at and grab information. But I almost use Wendy as a uh, kind of a starting point of kind of a general look over things. And then if I see something that I really want to get uh, detailed information, I'm going to go to a different site to either confirm that or, or to at least get a different uh, view, like Chelsea said, um, it shouldn't be the sole source of information. Oh, that's perfect, Rick. That's exactly what I. That's exactly what I do too. So I, I love. I, I just want to reiterate. You, that's perfect. Exactly what you just said. <laughs> right. Okay. Good. So I'm going to be doing the uh, Marion Bermuda race. Of course, that that seems like that's right up your alley, Chelsea. So what sort of things should I be thinking about and looking at to get ready for that? Yeah. There's um, a whole bunch of great resources for you. Um, definitely starting to look at the Gulf Stream early on is important. Um, so is, this is very similar to the, the Newport to Bermuda race, um, just a different starting point. But the Newport to Bermuda race, people I know will start two, three months ahead of time watching the Gulf Stream patterns to just see wow. how it's how it's looking. So you don't you probably don't need to start two or three months ahead, but definitely three weeks or so ahead of time, you want to be looking at the Gulf Stream, um, you know, where the meanders are, because it's a much slower moving system than our our weather patterns in the atmosphere. They're both fluid, so they both have these um, fluid dynamics, but the ocean is much slower with how the eddies move and change. So, And how, how long are those eddies sitting there? Oh, yeah. They can be moving, um, you know, it's more like on the order of weeks rather than the weather is on the order of days. You know, it, yeah, might, okay. take, it might take a day or so for a weather system to move through. And, um, and maybe an eddy or a meander on the Gulf Stream could take a week or more. So going to Ocean Prediction Center or the Navy or some of these other sources for current information. Well, the one bad thing about currents is that there's not quite as much data and information available about currents as compared to the weather, which is, I think we're working on it as a uh, as a country and, and through, through NOAA, but there's only a few pieces of information that you, you can look at um, to see yeah, I was going to ask, where, where do you get that information? Yeah, probably the best sources are Ocean Prediction Center. They have a pretty nice, a few, a few nice graphics um, of what the Gulf Stream is currently looking like. And then there are some Navy models that will simulate um, what it's supposed to do over the next few days to a week or so. Um, and the predictions on those models are notoriously not the greatest, but they do help and at least see, you can at least get an idea of how the eddies are moving or if they're moving at all. So that those are probably the two best sources. I think there's one model, um, the RTOFS, it's like real time ocean forecast system. Um, at, I use that one just to, just to get a general idea of what the Gulf Stream is going to do. Let me ask you, I, I've looked at the uh, the graphs or the charts for the Gulf Stream, and they seem like they um, show the entire East Coast. Is Am I missing something, or there's not much detail there? Yeah, that's the other thing that's just kind of um, a bummer about. So all of the data that we have that co for, for the Gulf Stream, it pretty much comes from the uh, satellites that are in orbit. And so it's there's just usually not a lot of like zooming in that you can really realistically do. 
there is one site um, that Rutgers has. Rutgers has a satellite imagery of the Gulf Stream, and it's it's called an altimeter. Basically, what it does is it measures the sea surface height, and the sea surface height is correlated to the temperature. So based on that, they can tell you where, where the currents are and what the currents are doing. But the catch is you need clear skies. You can't have any cloud cover over the ocean. So when there's cl- a lot of cloud cover over the ocean, it makes those images that you see of the Gulf Stream are not always the most accurate if you've had a lot of cloud cover. Right. Okay, great. Well, I want to start thinking about wrapping it up. And I want to end with maybe a story that you might have where you learned about the weather the hard way. Was there any kind of a hard lesson you had where you're like, oh, snap, shoulda, coulda, wish I knew that. Um, Anything you can think of that comes to mind that was a, a lesson learned regarding weather? Well, one thing, I don't know if it was a total surprise, but uh, certainly a a reality was uh, crossing the Atlantic. And we crossed in June, which is, you know, a pretty typical time to make a uh, uh, eastbound passage. But we were, I think, about 200 nautical miles south of Newfoundland. And looking at uh, weather on a pretty much a six-hour basis every time a new forecast came out. But and one of the forecasts that came up, there was a little X on the uh, graphic just off the coast of the U.S. that said new. So basically, that's the uh, indication that there's a new low pressure uh, center developing, and it developed rapidly and overtook uh, the Kramer. And we could not move fast enough to get out of its way and ended up in a pretty extreme weather. So I was able to position the ship uh, to the south. So we had winds uh, abaft the beam and we probably weren't in the absolute worst part of the the storm. But, uh, you know, those storms move at, you know, upwards of 50 knots at times. And there's just no way we could get out of its way. So that's just a reality. Mm-hmm. Wake up. Boy, I look at the charts of that area and there's always some really tight isobars up there off the southern tip of Greenland in that area. Yes. Yeah, we're a bit south of that, but uh, but yeah, that's a pretty typical tra- track. And uh, some of the biggest sea states in the world are um, just south of that Cape Farwell and uh, Greenland. Um, Chelsea, anything that rings a bell for that kind of an idea? Probably the one that sort of caught me the most off guard, because I mean, usually I know what I'm getting into. And it's if it's not fun, then I usually at least know that it's not fun going into it. <laughs> um, but this one sort of caught me a little off guard. So I was navigating my first offshore race, which was from Annapolis, Maryland to Newport, Rhode Island. So we had gone down the Chesapeake Bay and a cold front, a minor cold front sort of swept swept across us. We had some good wind. We actually were in first place. So it, it, the pressure was on <laughs> and uh, we, we exited out the Chesapeake and we were coming up the uh, Northeast coast heading towards Newport. We were, I don't know, maybe uh, 100 miles east of New Jersey or something. Um, So we were kind of out there. And there was a warm front that was developing that was lifting up. And, you know, we were expecting a wind shift. And, you know, I expected a bit of clouds and maybe some rain with this warm front. But it had been a bit of time before I was able to download weather data. So I probably hadn't looked at weather data in like 12 hours or so. And the warm front had developed a huge line of thunderstorms on it, which we've been through thunderstorms before. I was on a 44-foot boat, a J44. Um, so those things are pretty solid. So I wasn't wasn't too worried. But um, the amount of lightning 
I still to this day, and I grew up in in Florida, you know, near Tampa, the lightning capital of the world. But still to this day, I have not seen so much lightning at one time in my life. So we were out there and just at any one moment, the entire sky was lit up with all of the lightning around us. And being on a sailboat with a tall, shiny pole sticking up was not the most comforting. <laughs> Uh, so it it was nerve wracking night, but uh, but we yeah we were fine. We we had the storm uh, the storm trysail you know ready to go, and we were we were off and running after the the storms passed us by. Yeah, boy, that reminds me of a time we were coming across from Nova Scotia, coming back to Maine, and I think we had a similar experience. We just saw lightning so much, like six or seven lightning bolts at a time. And there was one point where I said, Teresa, you better go down and get the fire extinguisher because I'm afraid we're going to get slammed by the next lightning bolt. So she was holding onto the fire extinguisher down below in the cabin. Yeah. And uh, it was pretty intense. Did you, did you put any of your electronics in, in the oven? Oh, we didn't really have any electronics. So. Oh, okay. We, we had a handheld GPS, uh, a handheld GPS unit and a satellite phone. And we put yep. both of those into the oven to act as a Faraday cage just in case. Yeah. Yeah, good idea, good idea. But we were on the VHF and we uh, we kept that close to hand. Yeah. But yeah, that's a, that's an exciting time when you when you got a little, as you say, shiny stick on the boat pointing up to the uh, the sky. All right, great. Well, let's wrap it up. I really appreciate it. This was a fun chat. I just love talking about weather. I hope you guys had a good time. Yeah, it's fun. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, really appreciate it, and uh, maybe we'll do it again sometime. Thanks for listening. You can subscribe to The Morning Muster wherever you get your podcasts or visit morsealpha.com. You can also find us on Instagram at Expeditions. The music is by Tim Erickson, my brother, and you can find him at timericksonmusic.com. Until next time, stay found.